You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, this is Tanya Pinkins, and you're listening to my podcast, You Can't Say That, on the Broadway Podcast Network. I once sat on a panel of all white men and me in an audience of culturally diverse people who were there to share their experience with the powers of the patriarchy about the lack of opportunities they had to get meaningful work. Sadly, the male panelists were more interested in talking about what they had done to support diversity rather than listening to hear what still needed to be done to improve diversity. One of them even argued that it should be his right to cast a dog if he wanted to. That speaker was Dick Cavett, who was deaf and dumb to how offensive it is to compare casting people of color with casting a dog. My next guest is one of the smartest people I know, and he was the co-founder of the original non-traditional casting project. Please join me in welcoming Harry Newman. So, hello, this is Tanya Pinkins with you today for You Can't Say That on the Broadway Podcast Network. You can't say that. This is the show where you can, and I do, and hopefully my guests do as well. And so today I am happy to have a very old and dear friend. Yeah, he's he's old and he's dear. Um, His name is Harry Newman, and I'm going to start off by saying that Harry and I, there was a time in my life when Harry and I used to talk like three or four hours a day, and then he just disappeared out of my life, and I missed the conversation with him for, it had to be a decade, it had to be a decade that you just just weren't talking to me for a decade. I didn't take it It personally. It wasn't personal. But I missed those conversations, so I have... Got him here in the studio today. It's probably going to be more than an hour because he is one of the smartest people I know. So I'm going to give you his bio. Harry Newman has been active in New York theater since the mid-1980s. His plays and translations have been seen at the Contemporary American Theater Festival, the Public Theater, Baca Downtown, and other theaters around the U.S. as well as in Germany. Most recently, his play Dry Time was presented in April by the Martin Siegel Theater Center in a staged reading directed by Lee Sunday Evans. In addition to his creative work, Harry was co-founder and first executive director of the Non-Traditional Casting Project and has written extensively on diversity and inclusion, including issues of class. He's also collaborated with grassroots and community-based theater groups and was co-editor of the landmark report From the Ground Up, Grassroots Theater in Historical and Contemporary Perspective, published by Cornell University. Also widely published as a poet, his work appears regularly in literary journals and a recent collection of his political poetry, Led from a Distance, is available from Louisiana Literature Press. Before working in theater, Harry studied chemistry and mathematics at MIT. You know, he's just a little bit smart and he's taking notes already. I don't know what he's taking notes about. He doesn't know what I'm going to say to him. I can't read my handwriting anyway, so it doesn't really nor, matter. Nor can I read mine. So, Harry, uh, welcome. What were you taking notes on while I was reading your bio? I was just thinking of different ground, uh, grassroots-based theaters that I worked at in case I came up with a question. So I had to, <laughs> no, I'm not, not going to ask you that. Okay. Uh, I had asked Harry several years ago to, uh, 
I wanted to do an essay on class in American theater because I feel like Americans like to pretend that there is no such thing as class in our country. But not only is there class in our country, but we're becoming more classist um, as we evolve. And we never did that. Harry did a lot of work and gave me a lot of research on the issue of class in American theater. And I never finished that piece for HowlRound. So I promised Harry that today we would start talking a little bit about class. So I'm going to open it up to you, Harry. Oh, that's it? That's it. No questions? That's how like it goes. No questions. We're having a conversation. You can't say that. This is not um, like an interviewer. Yeah, it's like we're having a conversation about something, like we were on the phone for hours like we used to be. Well, it's a, I mean, obviously it's a huge topic class, right? I mean, it's not a, uh, it's a big topic, and it's a topic that isn't even discussed properly, I think, in the United States, in part because of what you're saying, that for a long time we were essentially socially conditioned to believe there was no class. We were a a totally open society that there could be great movement from one level to another, unlike many, many other uh, European and you know non-European societies. Uh, but that was always a kind of lie that people of uh, at at the top of the heap would yes. tell themselves in order to feel better about things. But there was always a kernel of truth to it, yeah. uh, because there, there was a lot of movement. Uh, people could you know there were I mean there, were, there was genuine rags to riches stories and yeah. in all kinds of industries, not just in the arts, which is a very, has been, always been more fluid for people. Um, but uh, that's become less true. There's le much less class mobility. Yes, uh, in, uh, in every area. I think I read area. something uh, just the other day that said we now have a glass floor where mm. if you're uh, from a really elite family, you will stay elite even if you keep failing. And right. if you're someone trying to rise up, you can't get up. Right. So that's the, that is what is actually happening in our world right now. Right. And in fact, I think there was a recent study, which I can't cite, unfortunately, but I'm, I move my hands a lot. I think I just knocked <laughs> the microphone. Uh, I have to be strapped down when I talk. Uh, there's a recent study, I can't cite it, but that actually uh, the United Kingdom is less class stratified now than the United States in terms of the possibilities of, of movement. Now, I, I think it might be a matter of degree. I'm not right. sure how they calculated it, and that's part of the slipperiness. Because yeah, because the Brits, man, you got an accent. Like, they right. don't care how much money you have. That accent just sets you like, oh, Correct. you got right. that accent, you are low class. Right. They have a middle. They have a glass floor and a glass second floor, probably, <laughs> as well, so you can't yes. get there. Um, what was the question? No, we were talking, we just were opening it up to talk about class. I mean, I think, I feel like so much of American theater, I often say when I'm going to the commercial theater, I'm going to theater of ennui. You know, we're just watching people who don't really have problems, who like to go and watch themselves not having any problems. And um, it doesn't interest me. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call, well, theater, to me, that conjures up a very specific uh, kind of state Oh, don't tell me you're going to get like some like, words with the word definition. No, 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 I'm not. Don't okay. worry. But uh, so I, I would see it more as most commercial theater is essentially a kind of community theater for a community of privilege. Mm. Uh, uh, just by the very fact of how high the barrier is in order to participate as an audience member, let alone as a producer or, you know, some performers, again, have more fluidity, but for the most part. And so what it does is it reflects that community, the way uh, African-American theater, black theaters, when they still existed as a force throughout the U.S., they reflected the concerns of the black community in the communities, because there's no one singular community right. in the main and similar. And so I think that's sort of what's happened. Uh, one problem, is, and, and that wasn't true of Broadway uh, historically. If you think about the 40s and 50s, it wasn't as expensive to attend 
uh, proportionally. I mean, if, if you look back in terms of how people were paid versus what they paid for tickets. So you had, a, there was more openness. And also, of course, before the 40s and 50s, I mean, before the 50s, there was no television. So theater was the dominant cultural expression. And, and so many more people participated everywhere. It was a much more commonplace But thing. in England, people still participate. Yes. You know, you go in any community and the, the guy selling the newspaper, he knows what play is playing at what theater around the corner. Mm-hmm. It is still, it, it feels like they feel like the theater belongs to the people in a way that, you know, often Broadway houses, you just feel like certain communities aren't even welcome. Correct. Right. And they probably, well, they, yes, I don't know if that's intentional, but it's a sort of disparate impact, if you will. You know, the way uh, discrimination law used to be based on the idea that uh, it, you may not be intentionally trying to discriminate, but by the actions you're taking, your your impact is, you know, affecting certain groups. So I, I wouldn't, you can't really, I think it's an outcome of how everything has sort of shifted uh, in, in a class basis throughout the society that that has intensified in in Broadway, or even in the not-for-profit theaters, the large ones, they're just yeah. as stratified as, well, they make an effort uh, to change, but it's often within the confines of that same class definition. Yeah, and I feel that even for the writing, like when I see writers, we, we call them being inclusive or diverse, so many of the stories that I'm seeing by writers who are non-POC, they are still centering a non-POC person in their story about their life. Um, hmm. And so I, I, I just go, is that what it takes? That's why they, you know, the theater picked you because, they, you know, someone who ran the theater felt that, oh, I know I can recognize this because I'm centered in this story. I saw something at Manhattan Theater Club. It was a South Asian play and, you know, it's not my culture. And I was sitting and watching South Asian people and I was asking them afterwards, you know, did you like this play? Because they had this white com- comic guy in there and the first act ended and this woman found out that her um, there had been a shooting in a in a mosque, and she was leaving. And then on stage, this white guy just had like ten minutes on stage. Hmm. And I thought, well, something must be gonna happen. No, we just were watching him sort of run around and clean up or close up the place, but there was no dialogue. He just got time on stage, and it wasn't his story. And I just didn't know why. Right. Obviously, I haven't seen this play. If I did, I don't remember it. It was too traumatic for me. But I can, you know, I, it's hard to talk about things in the abstract, obviously, in the general. Of course, term, we can talk without, about no, things I mean, in the abstract. No, I mean, it's hard for me to know long. how to respond to that. But I would say that to me, it's, it's a great irony that theater, in fact, of the arts, is the most democratic uh, art form, and uh, fundamentally. You don't need anything but a group of actors to get together to do it. Anyone at any stratum of a society could actually make theater. And in other cultures, and even traditionally in the United States, there has been, because there was a very active little theater movement, community-based theater movement in the... But the unions are definitely going to shut that down. (laughs) Um, But still, I mean, its heart is, is the most open of... All art forms, in a way. Yeah. If you, if you, if you, you define, can do it in your living room. You can right. do it in a parking lot. Right. People do Shakespeare in the parking lot. And if you define theater very broadly to include dance and other forms as well, so all sort of live performance. But uh, that's not how it's sort of evolved in the last several decades. It's become more and more constrained and more and more distant from most people's experience, and, and not just in terms of the content, but in terms of most people don't see theater anymore in this country. Um, 
And again, that wasn't always true. In, my, in not my lifetime, but our lifetime, but in Sarah Parent's lifetime, that wasn't true. <clears throat> you know, I, and you're making me think about Tyler Perry because he made his fame doing theater. Mm-hmm. He created this kind of pageantry theater I, that the only thing I can think of it it's like is what they do in London. Like you'd have some scenes and then you'd have some songs and then you'd go and have some more scenes. And there's clearly a huge audience for it, such a large audience that even when he was just selling the videos of his movies, he made enough money to become significantly wealthy because the the audience and the, the thirst for theater right. is very high. But he was building on something that had already existed because of exclusion. He was building on the tradition of black theaters in small towns in the South throughout that and, and communities that... Uh, did have a theater-going community within themselves in a certain way. That right, this but wasn't why don't the the commercial theater companies go, hey, look at those people. They got th- There's an audience. It made Tyler Perry wealthy. They don't want that well, they, audience. They might do that now, but at the they time, don't. it doesn't exist to them. You see, you don't have to look around if everything's going pretty well for you as it is. They, they have plenty to do as it is. They don't, and that, there are many theaters. I mean, Tyler, Tyler Perry is an extreme example in terms of his huge amount of success, but there are many... Uh, theaters, including some I wrote down in my notes I can't read, um, that exist without regard to any um, uh, what's happening in the commercial theater at all. Yeah, and but capitalism build- is always looking for another market. Do you know what I mean? Capitalism seeks more market. We need a bigger audience. We need a bigger audience. And yet there's this audience of poor people, black people, right. Native American people that the commercial theater is not trying to capture. Right. Well, but they, in order to capture them, they'd have to make certain fundamental changes, like adjust the cost of ticket prices, which there's a reason why, say, a commercial theater like a Broadway theater, the ticket prices are so high. It's not purely greed on the part of producers, so it could be, I doubt it, but it, it has to do with all kinds of institutional structures that exist. Like what? Uh, union costs, the cost of the, the rental, the real estate, all the... I mean, this is a real estate operation, ultimately, most theaters. Right. Um, and so, in but order to... when you to, go on a tour, when you're going on a tour and they have all of these... A tour of what? When you take shows out on tours, oh, because, yes. I mean, you, you Broadway is like the commercial for your tour. Right. So when you go right. out on tour, I would think you want to get every audience you can possibly get. They're not trying to get the Chit- Chitlin Circuit audience. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm positing, is that a class thing? I think it's a lot of things. I mean, it's a racial thing. It's probably a class thing. I mean, it's, there's now very stark lines between what it, someone feels comfortable entering into and not entering into. What do you mean? Well, I think that there's a sense, there's a growing awareness of, of um, how should I say this? I don't know how to say it exactly, but there's Just a... Just say it. No, no, I, I, it's, not that, it's not that I can't say it, <laughs> but it's not, it's, not, it's, not coming, it's not coming clear. It's not coming to, out articulately. Right, and I have to be articulate. No, don't be articulate. I have to, uh, you know, I have to deny my class background. Yes, because MIT, that is just way well, over my an class. Ac- that's an accident, because I was a scholarship student at MIT. I mean, you, know, you had so, to be smart enough to get in. Yeah, but that's nothing with class. That has to do with just an accident of birth. You know what I mean? I just as good at math and science, and but also theater. I did theater younger. Though that study I said said that that's not even getting people Well, that's not anymore. true anymore, but it right. was true still when I was, because uh, yeah. I'm old, as you mentioned. Yeah, you are old. I'm not that old. And I'm old. Yes, we're about the same age, so we're in the we're in the midpoint of whether we're old or young. We're kind of <laughs> desperately holding on to the last parts of old is the youth. new great. Uh, that's what that is. Yeah. Uh. Mm-hmm. But when when I you know in the eighties when I went to 
MIT, it was totally, and, and other Ivy League schools apparently in the last few years have adopted this, but it was needs-based. So if you needed a complete scholarship, as I, I paid $250 a year, and at the time MIT was the, had the highest tuition in the country, uh, then, then they would bring you if they wanted you to come. Now, why do they want me? Was it just my grades? Was it also my background? I don't know. My father, my, my stepfather was a groundskeeper. My mother was an occasional secretary. Uh, she wouldn't. She was very ill for a period of time. She was bedridden. So, other than that, she would have been a a, a non-occasional uh, secretary. Um, so, I, I mean, perhaps that influenced that they, they wanted their people to, you know, get to meet the little people. Something like that. I don't know. But I mean, MIT is always a peculiar part of the Ivy League in any case because they were the engineers. Essentially, they were. They sort of. They were never. Very few people from MIT became sort of dominant in the government. For instance, that's what Harvard. Yeah, do. when I was at Carnegie and Mellon, it was the artists, artists and the engineers, and they used to say it was the fruits and the vegetables. <laughs> That's kind that of funny. That really was what they said at right. Carnegie. Right. So it's, it's never really exactly, uh, in, except for the, by def, by uh, because of the cost involved in going, uh, it sort of was more of a kind of middle class, essentially, in terms of how it's placed in the view of the, the elites. Uh, they were the people who did the work that other people, you know, wanted to have done in a certain sense. Uh, obviously, I mean, I have, I remember clearly when I learned about class in a kind of, because, you know, we didn't talk about it much. I grew up in a rather, you could kind of, you know, I don't know, underprivileged, to use a weird word, uh, neighborhood in Miami. And, you know... I, they have underprivileged neighborhoods in Miami? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is really far. This is <laughs> far from this north of Hialeah. The, the, the low end of South Beach. It didn't even have... No, no, no. That's Miami Beach. That's very different than Miami. Miami is a sprawl, a suburban okay. sprawl that has all these different neighborhoods. That okay. There's no herb. Well, now there's an herb. But at the pers- at, when I was growing up, it was all suburban. There was no... Okay. Um, and so I was very far inland. Uh, my... my Stepfather who would drive to work. He worked for the city of Miami Beach for a while, and then as a groundskeeper, and then so he worked. So, what class would that have put you in? What class were you in? Did you rise? Well, from your I class? Cons- when I learned about it, well, I I learned about class. I called myself upper lower class. Upper lower class. Okay. Like, like our great pride was we never went on welfare. Okay, uh, I've been on welfare yeah. many times, no. so I, I don't I don't have any shame about it. No, no, but I you understand what I'm saying. That's like that a, was a that was our thing, thing for people, so. right? But to get back to MIT and how I learned about class there was in a class, ironically, <laughs> but a different kind of class, um, a playwriting workshop by A.R. Gurney, who was okay. a longtime professor there, and it was um, we would write plays and we would bring them in and read them or have them read, and then we would critique and respond. And one person brought in about half, and I can't remember whether this is maybe my first class with Pete Gurney or, or my second or third, because I took about two or three classes with them of the same sort. Uh, but So it may be 1980 or 81, something like that. And someone brought in a play, these are all one acts, and brought in a play uh, about a, a middle-class tennis player. He wanted to become a tennis star. And you have to remember, in, in the early 80s, tennis wasn't the wide open, as wide open as, as it is now. It was before the Williams sisters. It was before all this sort of effort by the USTA to really kind of broaden the base. So it was very much a white linen, linen from my perspective, which is part of this is the anecdote about it, uh, upper class sport. And I, in fact, at the, when they, everyone sort of finished reading and I, you know, I started the commentary and I said, you know, I find it very interesting that you would uh, make your character a middle class person playing tennis. Because to me, that's an upper-class sport. And there was total silence in the room of about 20 other people. And then the, someone cleared their throat. It wasn't Pete. It was, it was one of the students. And, 
you know, sort of like talking to a five-year-old was saying, no, no, Polo was upper class. Uh, I, oh, sorry, I have to back up for a second. I, I, said, I said, to me, um, bowling is middle class. I said, and, you know, and tennis is an upper class sport. And, they said, and then there was silence. And then she said, no, 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 Polo is upper class. Tennis is middle class. And I realized in that moment that I was very far down looking up. Mm. And they were all where they were. And they probably weren't all at the Polo level. They were probably in the group of people who aspire to a polo level they were probably still you know upper middle class or whatever but I, I was very far down looking up and they were up there and not even looking around, you know, just looking around amongst themselves they didn't have to look down and so I, I remember that very very clearly it was it was a shocking moment to me and, I, and then that continues along uh, but that's you know that's sort of the class that I was to answer your question. Finally, right, a question, by the way. I've never been to a polo game. I don't know anything about polo, so I definitely have never been in the upper class. Though, to me, I think I'm pretty privileged and kind of upper class. But if right. polo is the, the standard, I'm definitely not. Well, it depends on, again, you know, my mother used to say everything depends on your place in the food chain, right? And so if you are one of the close to one of the big fish, then yes, polo is up. But if you're like one of the minnows, then that you know that gets eaten by the others and no polo wouldn't be upper class you, you wouldn't even think about polo to me polo didn't even exist as as a thing people did outside of movies that right. i wouldn't have watched anyway but right. apparently they do yeah There's, no I, 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 it's I'm, like croquet but on horses basically what but it is. i like croquet wow. that's a that's a working class kind of sport yeah, bring a bring a horse to the next <laughs> croquet game the horse is what takes it to upper class because you got to feed and board that horse. <laughs> and the balls are bigger and the, the sticks are longer. I don't know what they call it. Well, see, stick. now you're going to get okay. into Frances Cress Welsing and, and her unified theory of, 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 uh, of horses. humans. Hmm. She tried to come up with a unified theory about all of our behavior. And she has a whole theory about balls and white balls and black balls and who plays with which I don't know who you're balls. talking about. But <laughs> you don't know who you're talking about. No, I don't know Francis we'll leave Francis alone. But let's talk about diversity, inclusion, and right. all of that in, in the theater. Um, I teach at Atlantic NYU. And one of the challenges I've been having with my students, I had one this one student last year and I had one this year, one of my students told me she loved a British playwright, Debbie Tucker Greenwood. I think I got her name oh. right. And I said, wonderful. Do this play. I love this play. Do a scene from it. And she was like, oh, no. Those characters are black. And I wouldn't be comfortable Well, this is what I was sort of saying that. earlier about these lines being drawn that someone, you know, th 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 when I was saying in terms of theaters being very clear that there's I no territory. I don't like it. Sure, I understand that. And then I had, I have one boy in a class of girls and so we're going to do horse girls and i said to him you're going to play a girl you're going to play a one of the roles that was written for a female so how are we going to justify that you're in this room it's a girl's room it's a girl's club are you trans are you gay you know how, what are we going to do because we got to this is what you are we got to justify you in the scene was like I, I I wouldn't feel comfortable. Well, why do you have to justify? Why would you have to justify? Why couldn't because he play actor, that role? Because as an for me, acting is living truthfully and fully in imaginary circumstances. Right. So if he's going to be a boy in that room, that is a room where the dialogue specifically says these are all girls. There has to be something about him that makes them accept him. But why so, does, why do you have to perceive him as a boy? Let me just back up for a second. He, he when has genitals. But in the realm of the imagination, he'd be playing that character. I'm, I'm pushing a little bit. Yeah, push. I like push. Only because I mean, when the, I, this is really reaching back. I didn't back. say we had to make him a girl. I didn't ask him to play a girl. But you had to. You, we were coming you up are, with some physicalized justification person. for it, though. 
I want, it could be a psychological. It could be he decided he was a they. But I was like, you, these girls clearly know you are not biologically a girl. So how, why are they letting you in the room? Make it up however you want to make it up. But you got to give me a reason why these. But you're still basing that on physical reality. Because right? I think physical reality is very Physical important. reality does exist, obviously. Yes. I mean, we're not just this in our brains. The, this talking. is where we're going to go with this. But, yes. But I mean, I, I'm reaching back a little bit, but I was thinking, this is the first example that came to my head. But when Diane Venora, remember her playing Hamlet at the public theater? This is like 30 something years ago. Uh-huh. She played Hamlet. She didn't play a woman playing Hamlet. She played Hamlet. That was a choice she made. And people went with it. And uh, that's fine. That right. makes sense. But she Diane, didn't have to come up with a physicalized justification. How am I a, a boy, a girl? You don't know that she didn't do that. You don't. Well, I knew know her at the time. I don't think she did that. Her but, mind. Right. And when you're teaching young actors, they have to go through a mental process that will allow them to find the behavior and choices that are theirs, so that they can live truthfully and fully in the imaginary circumstance. I could play a cat. Right. But. I have 47 years of experience imagining myself in a lot of ways. Right. The, this is someone saying they couldn't imagine themselves as trans. Well, they're not I'm like, I no, can imagine myself that. as a pedophile. Well, I, no, I wasn't he there. Said, he said he couldn't. He would, I thought he said he was, was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. Yes, he felt it was inappropriate. Right. And I said to him, you need to be able to not only man imagine yourself as a trans person, you need to be able to imagine yourself as a trans-hating person right. because as an artist, you cannot limit your imagination to anything. But I would, I would argue that that was his imagination may or may not be limited. I don't know the fellow, and you know, obviously I'm, I'm very far stop, removed stop from this. Equivocating. But, no, no, I'm not equivocating. I'm, I'm just being precise, <laughs> but, which can seem like the same I'm thing. I'm going to just tear you apart on precision then. <laughs> In any case, uh, but I would say that that discomfort that he was expressing or that, you know, is because he was, his, his imagination was running, hitting the shoals of physical reality. A political correctness. No, no, but if also physical reality. To him, a trans person has to be a certain physical person of a certain situation based on their physical reality, and he didn't feel comfortable representing that because I mean, it might be political correctness in his case, I, but I don't, I don't think know. that that's true in the imagination. Like, But you're not allowing him to be in the imagination based on what you said. When I asked you, why couldn't he just be in the room and, and, and follow through and regardless of whether he was a boy or not and be that character based on his imagination, uh, you, you, you were saying, no, it has to be physical reality. Has to, you have to justify no, him being a boy in that room. Well, I guess you're calling it physical reality. If I brought a boy into a room, there's no way any of us are going to not know that you are biologically different than us. So why are we letting you in our girls' club? But you're not in the room. You're in the room of the imagination in, in, a, in an acting class. Okay, but I still physically see that you're a boy. Like, I'm not pretending you're not a boy. So what what is the reason why I've let you be in the room? You know, this is obviously hard for me to talk about because I don't know the play, I don't know the you know the people involved. But uh, well, I, let's I, make I, it the women, right? Which and I never suddenly, saw, one I of them is a man, right? And we can all see he's a man. Well, We're you know, not changing his clothes. Uh, uh, he's there in our dressing room. It really depends on how it's done. From my yes, no, no, let we me, could do some avant-garde. No, theater, no, it doesn't have to be that avant-garde. I'm teaching students. It, how, it doesn't have to be that avant-garde. Okay. Uh, I, mean, I mean, again, I have to reach back because. The theme here is that we're old, but uh, you know, if I think about uh, Charles Ludlam, right, and the, who was a, was a great theater person of the '80s and '90s, and you should look him up if you don't know who he is, kids. Uh, but he would play characters who were women. He was being drag, yeah. but he we never he was actually playing them as a woman. He wasn't. No one responded to him as a man in drag. He was just 
the woman who happened to be in drag, Ethel Eichelberger, but we knew another he downtown was a man person. in drag. And so, in my mind, if I'm the actor playing with him, I have made some adjustment in my mind for the fact that I'm playing this scene with a man in drag. Like, I, I, I don't think that as an actor, we can ignore reality. Like, we have to solve reality. But in a classroom reality. setting, you have to have reality detected. Because as I was saying, I, I think... I think you have to solve reality before I you I think that actor's sense of his reality was also stopping him from being able to leap imaginatively. Because a trans person is a very specific reality to him that he didn't want to transgress upon. Uh, and similarly... He didn't My want other to play student, like Debbie Tucker Greenwood, didn't want to transgress upon right. the reality of a black person. Right. Well, I think it's a bad thing for actors. I think that as artists, we have to be able to transgress upon everything. Right, but, you're, but you have to still struggle within that yourself because you're saying uh, the boy is a boy is a boy, and they, I, I have to see that justification. That's not a trans, you're not no, allowing no, no, a transgression no, no, no. in a certain way. For me, way. if he said, you know... I'm not comfortable with this because I don't want to offend somebody. But if that's what you're asking me to do, I'll try it in the room. You're not understanding what that I'm saying. That would be a different thing. But he was like, "You're looking that's for a justification. You're do. looking for a justification is a resistance to transcending this physical reality that you're stuck in that has to be dif- permanently definitional based on genitals." You see what I'm saying? And we don't. I feel like we. No, really, I want to have this conversation because yeah. this is important to me. Um, I think the imagination can transcend genitals, but I also think... That's a good tagline. That <laughs> I think that genitals, our biology is a critical thing. And this gets into yes. another thing that I'm actually going to try to do a podcast with, with MJ Rodriguez and Shakina Nafak, because I feel very strongly about what I'm seeing happening with people who talk about, you know, a trans person who wants to be a woman and a woman is a woman, and that's, that's, that's politically like a hot topic that people aren't allowed to talk about or they get mm-hmm. banished right. from the room. And so that's a, you can't say that conversation that I really, really want to have. And I feel like we're, we're touching on that right now. Well, within that a, you're accusing me. No, within pedagogy we're talking about. But you're saying that I'm denying this boy the right to imagine being a girl without identifying as trans or gay, that somehow I am the person limiting his imagination. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that you talk about theater being, uh, that theater artists should learn how to be transgressive against the, uh, in all meanings of that. And I'm saying there seems to be a slight sticking point where you have to have a justification for this person, be, of this person... Uh, generally defined as a male is um, in your class he has to have a justification for being in this all female play I don't know the play but this all female play and I'm saying why that to me seems like a kind of a little bit of a limiting factor on your side where because you said there's a binary choice so to speak he'd be trans he could be gay and those are the two that you gave he there could might be, be other anything things. he could be uh, he could just be they they them you know he could be anything but this is a room where a boy would not be in the room the, this group of girls this play is so specific about this girl feminine thing that they would not have a man in the room and in fact certain girls aren't worthy of being in the room right. so so why choose that uh, scene or to, to work on knowing that there was this boy in the room right why not why should you know they, the school happens to be doing Romeo and Juliet right now right and it's all women so they're doing an all-female cast of Romeo and Juliet and right. they're having a lot of trouble with their director and he's very unhappy that he has to do an all-female Romeo and Juliet right. um yeah why not why not have a guy have to play a girl men got to play all the Shakespeare roles for a long right. time right why not 
And if he had said to me, well, I actually just want to be a girl, right. that would have been fine. I see. But he led with, I can't do this because that would be a misappropriation. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm upset with the misappropriation thing. Yes, yeah. there is misappropriation, but I don't want it to be in the mind and the imagination of artists. I think that you have to to be able to imagine anything before you start worrying about whether you're being culturally appropriate. And in you, and as a student, the limit, you should be unlimited. There is a sense that. that everything counts now. Every every choice you make counts now. It'll be counted against you. We're always, now we're hunted by like a permanent record yes, from, from the internet public school never days. dies. Right, or something along those lines. And even, even if it's the internet of your imagination, the internet in your head, you know, uh, Paulo, what's his name? Um, Oh, Augusto Boal, the the Brazilian uh, theater radical theater artist, talked had exercises about the policeman in your head, mm. and he would work in communities and throughout any influence and international movement. Um, and so, instead of the policeman in your head, we now have the internet in our head, or and so maybe that's part of what. Again, it's it. These are enormous topics because they do get to the question of. Uh, imagination, fluidity. Uh, is there really flu uh, gender fluidity in one case, or are these new categories that people are just embracing and clinging to them as well? I, I don't I mean, I, I'm not raising that in any provocative way other than say we're still in this transitional period in terms of this very set of questions. And, and I, I'd rather have it stay open as long as possible, both in a creative realm and in the societal realm. And I feel now there's a push to even label and define things that are supposedly labelless and labelless, not libelous, in case anyone, because I have bad diction. Uh, so I think that's you know uh, more of an argument for for broadness that I'm trying to make. This is Tanya Pinkins. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Harry Newman. Part two is coming up next. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.